Morning, church. Well, uh, I have the joy of bringing the word this morning. Um, it's exciting. Uh, this week was quite a week in preparing for this morning because, well, when you are assigned to preach a Sunday morning, spiritual warfare becomes a real heavy thing. And so uh, I was still prepping this morning and even made some adjustments during worship because the Lord's on the move and he's just giving me clarity as we go. And so here we are. Uh, we're going to be in Nehemiah 3, but we're not going to go there yet. Uh, about a month ago, Andrew, Pastor Andrew, texted me and he said, hey, like, on October 1st, you want to you wanna preach on Nehemiah 3? And I was like, wow, that's awesome. I'm so honored. Uh, let me just take a couple of days to pray about it, and I'll think through it. And so I was, took some time. I was praying through it. I go to Nehemiah. I actually had never gone through Nehemiah before on my own, and so I went through it. And I'm looking at Nehemiah 3, and I'm like, huh, Nehemiah 3. It's, wait, I didn't need to turn this on. Oops. There we go. Uh, so Nehemiah 3, I'm looking at, at the text. And Nehemiah 3 is 32 verses, a list of names. A ton of names. He repaired, she repaired, they built this, they built that for 32 verses straight. And I go to Andrew and I'm like, Andrew, is this some kind of joke? <laughs> you're messing with me. Surely you're, you're not serious. Either you're not asking me to actually preach, and this is just all funny, uh, or you're actually serious and you want me to preach on a list of names. Well, he wasn't kidding. Uh, he was serious. And so <laughs> I, uh, I was like, okay, let's, let's think outside the box a little bit. Let's, let's look at this. And the more I thought about it, the more I was like, okay, this list of names is included here for a reason. It's not pointless. There's a purpose to it. There has to be. Because these people that are here are the ones that said yes to rebuilding this wall or finishing this wall. And those that are not on this list didn't help with the wall. And so these people are important. But it's less so uh, about what exactly the people did and more so why they did it to begin with. Uh, why are they on this list? Because when we look at Nehemiah chapter 1 and 2, Nehemiah is in secret before the Lord, weeping with the Lord, saying, Lord, like our, our wall is destroyed uh, and I'm ashamed of it. And this is your city, God. Do something. Here I am. Like, send me, do whatever. And then Nehemiah goes to talk to the king. What happens? We're going to look at that some more. And... Soon enough, he talks to these people and he communicates something in such a way that these people say yes. And I believe that what Nehemiah taps into and what the people catch wind of is not only the message of Nehemiah, where we're at, but also I would argue that it's the message of the entire Bible. And so uh, turn to Genesis 1 with me, would you? Genesis chapter 1. If you don't know where that is, it's like the first page of your Bible. Uh, <laughs> Genesis chapter 1. And while you're going there, I'm just going to pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for your goodness in our lives. I thank you for your word. I thank you that you're great. That we say, how great is our God. God, you are so great. And yet you stoop low to walk with us and you, out of love, decide to make your home in our hearts. So God, we want to honor you this morning. Lord, lead me, uh, speak that I might not speak. Lord, may it just be your words that are delivered. And God, we love you and we just pray for open hearts and open ears to be able to receive what you want to teach us together. Uh, in your name, amen. Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Okay. But why? Why did God create the heavens and the earth? Was God bored? And so he got on some creative tip and decided to just be artsy for seven days? Was he lonely? No. He was not lonely. He was not bored. God had a purpose in what he did. Uh, to say that God was lonely is a big confusion of the Trinity because the Trinity had all kinds of love among each other. And so God was never lonely. He wasn't bored. Uh, he wasn't just on some creative tip. Uh, he had purpose to why he created the world. And so we look at Genesis 1. And then, you know, day one, there's light and dark created. Day two, there's the sky. Day three is the, the ground, seas, and plant life. And then day four, the sun, moon, and stars to fill that light and dark. Day five, the sea and sky creatures to fill the waters and the air. And then day six, all the land creatures and us. And now on the end of the sixth day, it says that God saw all that he had made and it was very good. So the question that's still lingering is, for what purpose did he create the heavens and the earth? Now, I'm not saying why did he create us. He created us for his glory, but he could have placed us in heaven and that still would have been accomplished. So why create heavens and earth? Why create this entire universe for us to dwell in? Because an omnipresent God decided to create a universal locale place us in a garden in the midst of it and why well whatever reason he has we see that he, that he accomplishes this mission by the end of chapter one because at the end of chapter one it said that god saw all that he had made and it was very good he had completed his mission and so there's this lingering question in chapter one. Why did he do this? You're thrown right out the gate with God creating everything. And you're like, what the? Who's God and why did he do this? Well, I want to propose to you that the entire rest of the Bible, after chapter one, uh, gives us one resounding answer to this question of why did he create the heavens and the earth? And... Uh, I'm actually going to give credit to Michael Miller of Upper Room for this language, but I believe that the answer is that the God who is everywhere simply wants to dwell somewhere, and that somewhere is among his people. What do I mean? Let's look across the entire Bible real quick. Quick survey, okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the whiteboard. Is that cool? Can I use the whiteboard? Is that fine? Okay, cool. So... We have the garden. Then we have altars of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then we have the burning bush of, uh, of Moses. Then we have the cloud by day and fire by night. Uh, then we have Mount Sinai. Then we have the tabernacle. do this. I can spell. Andrew wasn't kidding. When you come up here, you forget how to spell. Uh, then there's all the temples. Then, the, then there's the courts of the temples. Then the prophets... Uh, wait, no. Then there's the Holy of Holies. We're just going inward. Then the prophets prophesied of God being inside people's hearts. Okay? And check this out. There's Jesus himself. Then there's the arrival of the Holy Spirit inside of man. Oh, but we're not done yet. Then there's the church. Then there's the Garden City of Revelation 22. You're like, what is this entire list for? We're just talking about lists today, aren't we, Chase? These things all have one thing in common. God, omnipresent, somewhere, a location that's actually tangible, confined. God among his people showing up. The God who is everywhere, everywhere at all times, decided to manifest himself in specific ways 
specific locations, and there was a reason for this. You know that one meme where the guy has like strings across an entire wall and he's like, I'm not crazy, but this is happening. <laughs> this is what I'm thinking of when I'm looking at the Bible. That there is a pattern, clearly, that God is trying to accomplish something and God's people along the way caught on and understood it. Across the entire Bible, God and his people have sought to make a home for the presence of Yahweh among man. The God who is everywhere wants to dwell somewhere, and he's been inviting his people to participate in that, in restoring this communion with him in our world since Genesis 3 happened. Because we were in the Garden of Eden and everything was fine. But then it all got messed up, and we've been in this process of restoration. Let's look at Genesis 2. First verse in Genesis 2. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. So God creates everything, and then he stops, and he rests in it. What? Why did you stop? Think about it. I believe that God made a home for his presence to rest upon, setting it apart for himself and his people to have communion together forever. And yet, we messed it up. And this is how I know that we did. Genesis 3, 8. Does this work? How do I do this? Oh, no, too far. Back. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They heard the sound of God walking. Well, first off, if they heard the sound, that means he's familiar. That means he's been around before. It means he's been walking there before. This has been a pattern of God to walk among his people. This is not some new thing where it's like, whoa, I've never heard this thundering before, and now it's thundering. Now, this had to have been familiar, that the omnipresence of God is exercising his omnipotence, his strength, and he's placing himself into a locale in the garden among Adam and Eve, among his people. And yet... We have what's in front of us, perhaps one of the saddest verses in Scripture, that man hides themselves from God instead of going to Him to hide themselves from His presence. How can you hide from the presence of God? He's he's omnipresent. He's everywhere. Clearly, there's something happening where God, who is everywhere, actually is somewhere at the same time. God and man had perfect communion together, and yet man ruined it. Entirely. And since then, God has been on a mission to restore this intimacy, the father and his kids walking together with nothing in the way. Just like cool the day. No crazy rain like we got the last two days. So the question for us now is, since we're on the other side of Genesis 3, how do we partake, partake in that mission today of kind of catching this vision for God wanting to be among man, yet he's everywhere. Where, where in the world would he dwell? And why in the world would he do it? Well, because he wants to. And so how do we invite him into a place to do that, his presence? Well, before we get to the practicals, let's go to Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1. Because Nehemiah here is just one example of many where God's presence is entering into a location. Nehemiah is just an example, and we're in Nehemiah chapter 3, and it's only fitting to talk about the entire concept while we're looking at one specific example. So Nehemiah, well, in Ezra, which is the same book, 
Zerubbabel tries to rebuild the wall. King Artaxerxes shuts him down, or Art, as we've been saying, uh, shuts him down and doesn't finish the wall, so the wall is half finished. And then Ezra decides to rebuild the temple, and the same king that shut Zerubbabel down said, here you go, I'll fund it entirely, here you go. Artaxerxes is just like bouncing back and forth, and Ezra actually finishes the temple. Then Nehemiah, and he hears that what Zerubbabel had started didn't get finished. And in chapter one, he begins to weep. And so he then, in chapter one, goes to the king. And by the way, this is the same exact king that shut Zerubbabel down. And King Art takes a turn. And it's the hand of God at work to continue to fulfill this mission. And so he moves even a pagan king to say yes to the rebuilding of the wall that he just shut down not too long before, probably about 15 years before. And so what I want to look at is what, what's going on in Nehemiah throughout this time. Something's happening in the heart of Nehemiah that I think actually points to what sort of places God desires to dwell in. And so if you look at Nehemiah in chapter 1, so Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4, Nehemiah hears these words and he sits down and weeps and mourns for days. And he says, I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. And so he's, he's praising God. So if you're taking any notes, I'm going to give you a ton of R's right here just for fun because uh, alliterations are awesome here. Quick look at Nehemiah's prayer. So we see he's turning to God, the great and awesome God who he's he's raising or praising, however you want to put it. Um, he's lift, uplifting God in worship beginning in the right place. Psalm 100 says, enter his courts with thanksgiving or enter his courts with praise. That, that's the language, same wording. Beginning in the right place with worshiping God for who he is, understanding that I am not God, but he is. And then he says, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who keep his commandments. He's then remembering who God is, what he's done, that he has not forgotten his covenant. And so he's reminding himself of the same. And in verse six, let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants. And he's now requesting of God to listen to his prayer. God, I know who you are. You're above me. You're worthy of all of my worship, all that I can give. And I'm going to remember that you're good. You've been good. You're going to continue to be good. And so I'm coming to you with my need. But I recognize also that I and my people have failed miserably. So I'm going to repent too. I'm coming to you, God, asking for help, but I recognize I'm off track. We're all off track. And because of that, we're at this place that we're at. Destroyed wall, shamed people, compromised. But in verse 8, he says, Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, 
Though those who you have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and will bring them to the place where I have chosen my name to dwell. God's chosen a place to dwell and he's going to bring his people back. So he's recalling the faithfulness of God. Saying, God, you promised this. Not only am I reminding myself, but I'm recalling it out loud because that's who you are, God. And so this is kind of this is kind of the model of Nehemiah's prayer of how he goes to the Lord with it. He repents for his sin. He's remembering what God has promised. He's recalling the faithfulness of God. And he's praising him for what he has done. And so what he's doing right here is he's beginning to position himself in the fear of the Lord to say yes to whatever God wants him to do. And so for us, in understanding the mission of God being among his people, in order for any of this to work, it begins in the we have to begin with the right heart posture. Why do I say that? Because there was a day where uh, God dwelled in temples, but there is now a time and forevermore where God is inside of us. So we have to have the right heart. So Nehemiah here is sowing in secret and in prayer. God, make my heart your home. He's not saying that language, but that's what's happening here. Look at chapter 2. So as we know, Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king. And so he's got really high role in the city. It says, And it came about in the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, Why would you re- what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And then he responds. So the king asks him a question and he answers the question. But there's this one sentence in between. So I prayed to the God of heaven. Now engage with me a little bit. Do you think he said, do you think he went away and prayed in secret for a couple days and then came back? Or do you think this was like a spur of the moment, like really quick in his head prayer? Spur of the moment. It's probably safe to say that this was completely spur of the moment. Because there's the question, there's the answer, and there's one sentence in between that I, I just prayed. I prayed to the God of heaven. And this is what some pastors call a breath prayer. It's, Lord, help me. You can say it in one breath. Lord, give me wisdom. Or, Lord, save me, as Peter says when he's sinking into the water. It's these breath prayers in a moment of an act of faith going, I'm going to turn to God to this moment, and I'm not going to try to figure it out myself. even though he knew that his request was to rebuild the wall. But he takes that moment because he's been positioning his heart to obedience to God that he says, like, okay, God, we need to have a quick meeting. Um, What do I say? And he does that very quickly and, and he responds because his heart is already in the right place. He doesn't go into this winging it. He goes into it with his heart already in the right place to say, God, I'll, I'll do whatever you want me to do. Here's what's going on. And I care about my people. It's kind of like Isaiah 6. It's, Here I am, Lord, send me. And so he's before the king and he prays and he asks to rebuild it. Nehemiah is a cupbearer. Chances are he doesn't know anything about rebuilding a wall. But because clearly God asked him to, in his prayer, it doesn't say anything about God. God, give me the opportunity to go rebuild the wall. That, that may not have been on Nehemiah's radar at all. That may not have been in the plans. But nonetheless, in this moment, that's what he asks. I want to go rebuild the wall. And so 
if we think from a symbolic level, if now, as we know, the, the, our hearts are the temple of the Holy Spirit and the temple of God. And at this time, we're already post-Isaiah and Ezekiel and all of these prophecies concerning God dwelling in the heart of man. So Nehemiah is protecting actually the temple of his heart with a wall of loyalty to God. And so now he's able to rebuild the literal wall of Jerusalem with God's people. Willingly even though he may not have known what in the world he was doing. Because he's protected his own heart in fidelity to the Lord. He said yes to whatever God wants him to do. And so when we obey God, as Nehemiah did here, God provides for our needs. We know this is true. Because when we obey him, where, where God guides, God provides, as, we, as you've maybe heard it said. The same thing happens for Nehemiah here. The king basically gives him everything. Like, here, you can have all the help you want. You want the resources? Great, here you go. You want the help? Hands? Here you go. Now let's look at Nehemiah 2, verse 11. Nehemiah travels to Jerusalem finally. And it says, So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I arose in the night. I and just a few men with me, I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem. And there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. So I went out at night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well and onto the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and its gates, which were consumed by fire. Then I passed on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount to pass. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. Nehemiah is doing all of this in secret, not looking for attention. He's literally just going and looking. And I, I think he's strategizing he's thinking through he's not looking for attention he's not seeking opinions from the crowd on what they think that should happen with this wall he's not permitting voices to come in and discourage him because well the wall build already got shut down so i try again you should stop he's not he doesn't care about any of that he's like god's given me this mission so it's me and the lord and the few guys with me so he's examining the wall so he can kind of anticipate people's objections, maybe create a game plan, praying through the different facets of what is before him. Because God has given a, a vision to rebuild the wall, to finish it. To surround God's city. And understand this, that we are God's city. We, God's people. And then... Nehemiah finally opens up the gate in verse 17. He goes to all these people and he says to them, you see the bad situation we are in. All right, guys, let's talk about the elephant in the room. Jerusalem is desolate and its gates are burned with fire. Come, let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. Now, to these people, it could potentially be like the boy who cried wolf. Because Rubabel just tried to rebuild the wall and it didn't work. Like, yeah, we already tried that. didn't work. So what are you doing? But Nehemiah didn't stop there. Verse 18, I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's words, which he had spoken to me. Check this out. Then they said, let us arise and build. And so they put their hands to good work. They're in. But there's still opposition, as to be expected. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? We finally see some opposition that Nehemiah probably anticipated. Is Nehemiah just going to like... Oh, you're probably right. Fine. Oh, sorry. My bad. I'm just going to just gonna go back. I'm just going to quit. 
This is, this is my fault. Sorry. I just had an idea. It was just an idea. No. So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will rise and build, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. In short, get lost. We're not stopping. He's so set on what God has told him to do because he began with the right heart posture. He got his heart to the right place, and so he was willing to do whatever God asked him to do in the face of uh, opposition because we're going to continue looking at Nehemiah. This opposition doesn't stop right here. Nehemiah didn't, like, win the battle right here. And all of a sudden, oh, okay, sorry, Nehemiah, my bad. Uh, you're right, we'll just leave you alone now. No, they continued to push back, and there was opposition all throughout the rest of Nehemiah. But the people of God never stopped. And so for us today, neither should we. We need to be consumed by this vision that we want God to be among his people, and we want to guard that. Because that's what the wall was for. The temple's finished. It's there. And uh, I forgot to say it at first, but if you if you like sermon titles, um, I like sermon titles too. Uh, and this one's this is called Vision for the Church. That we need the right vision for what we as the church are made for. That we are not what we do. Because uh, this list is not about the doing. It's not about the repairing so much so as we are who we are a part of. This list is about being in the fold of God. This, this list in Nehemiah 3 is all about those that said yes to being a part of it. We want to rebuild the wall. Because we are part of God's people. It's about identifying with God and his people and not the world. And so the church today, us, we're called to this ministry of repairing, you could say. Of inaugurating the restoration of all things, of God saying, I'm going to make all things new. And so how do we catch this vision again to rise and build and repair what's been bent in our temple, the church. Well, let's turn to Isaiah 66. So I think the answer is here. At this point, Isaiah, uh, God is basically saying to Israel, I don't care about your sacrifices. I don't care about your love for the temple. I care about your hearts. You're getting it all wrong. And this is so in line with what we're talking about right now. Verse 1 in Isaiah 66. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. So I am on high, I am everywhere, and everything of this earth is beneath me. I am God. And he goes, where then is a house that you could build for me? I'm everywhere. You can't contain me. Where is a place that I may rest? Now, I don't think he's mocking them. I don't think he's saying that like, like I'm, I, there's no place I want to rest. Because as we've seen, I think there's a pattern of God wanting to be among his people. And he goes, for my hand made all these things. I made all of it. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. Now check this out. This is what we're going to camp on for a little bit. But this, but to this one, I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Humble, contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. God right here is saying, I don't care about the temple. I care about your heart in this context. And so here is what I'm looking for. This is the sort of place I want to rest in. This is the sort of dwelling place I want to be in. And so for us as the church where we participate in this mission of God being among his people and his people being in the presence of God, we must have the right heart posture and adjust to him because if you are a believer in this room today 
there's this miraculous thing that's happened that God is living inside of you. Now, I think it's fair to say that God may live in many people, but does he rest in many? No. I think so often we operate and live for ourselves, even as believers. And so God is uncomfortable. There's the quenching of the Spirit that happens. And so I'm going to look at these three words here and unpack them quite a bit. First word is humble. You've heard that word many times, I imagine. I would say that the one who is humble, recognizing that they are here and God is here, below and above, the one who is humble worships the one who deserves it. That Jesus gave himself up in humility, Philippians chapter 2, and because of which he's been exalted. And so our response to him is to bend low and worship. I mean, check this out from Philippians 2. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's for this reason also that God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Then Paul says this, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's even in this Philippians 2 passage that we've looked at. You guys have probably seen many times, especially about Bible questions. God is at work inside of you, building his home for himself. In many ways, typologically, the Garden of Eden in your heart. Man with God and God with man. But it has to happen in humility. We must recognize We were not made for ourselves, but we were made for him. And so, to unpack this Hebrew word a little bit, humble, uh, it kind of has three forms to it. Poor, needy, and afflicted. Like, what does this have to do with humility? I don't know, I'll talk to God about the Hebrew word. Uh, poor here is essentially the idea that you lack something in your possession. There's a lack. Needy is that you need to receive that something into your possession. You need it. I need it! Spongebob reference? Yeah, okay. Great. Uh, afflicted is at the same time that there's you lack something that you need you also possess something else that's harming and weakening, weakening your ability to receive that something you need so you've got an enemy in short you're afflicted now I don't know about you but to me this looks like the gospel I need Jesus, or I lack Jesus in me, as a non-safe person, hypothetically, Uh, and I need Jesus, I need life, I'm dead, but I have an enemy called my sinful nature, and I need saving. I need saving. That's what humility says. I need saving. I cannot do this on my own. I need God. And so, 
The call here in Isaiah 66, the beginning place, is to say, God, I need you at all times. I cannot do this without you. I'm not going to try to do it myself. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to run to you because you are God and I am not. It's recognizing God for who he is. And when we recognize him for who he is, we begin to learn a bit about who we are. Poor, needy, and afflicted apart from Christ. And now, in Christ, we're rich, full, and free. Just for a second there, I thought I did all that, so that would be great. Uh, rich, full, and free, to know this is not prosperity gospel. We, we're full of His grace in our lives and his transformative power in us. And so in God's goodness, we can walk in humility knowing that he did all of this and apart from him, we can do nothing. That's John 15. One of the most key verses in the entire Bible. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus said that. You can do nothing. So when we try to do anything in our own strength, we're not accomplishing anything at all. Later in Philippians, Paul really says that all of my works are rubbish. And rubbish is a nice version of the Greek word there. The Greek word there is animal waste. Like poop. All of my works are poop before the Lord. If they're not for him or in him or through him. It's for myself. If I'm trying to build my own kingdom, that kingdom will not stand. The only kingdom that will stand is the one that God dwells in. And so we have to begin in the right heart posture of humility. The next word. Contrite. Whoa. Where are we? It's okay. I have no idea where we're at. Uh, it's okay. Contrite. I know, I know the scripture off the top of my head. The one who is contrite, I believe, prays to the one who can hear him. Who will hear it? This word, contrite, only comes up two other times in the Old Testament. And it's really odd. Both of those other two times literally mean being crippled in the feet. Those other two times, somebody's crippled in their feet. And that's the word for contrite here. It's like, what the? That's weird. Why that word choice? It's because to walk with God, we need functional feet. And contrite says, I have not been doing that. Instead, I've been crippling my own feet, living for myself. I'm nothing apart from you, God. So please hear my prayer. And so to quote the historical Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. To be contrite of heart is to recognize I have sin that cripples me down to the foundation. And in this context, God is expressing that he doesn't care about all this temple practice because their hearts are in the wrong. Matthew Henry says that the temple is slighted in comparison with a gracious soul. That God does not need the temple because he's everywhere. But also God will not heed the temple because he wants to dwell somewhere and that somewhere is specific. It's not in heartless movements of oh here you go god i'll give you this just because i want to check a box i'm going to read my bible because i'm trying to check a box i'm going to pray because it's before a meal and that's what i do every meal i'm going to go to chapel because i have to go to chapel boom boxing just checks boxes god doesn't care about any of that he cares about the heart of man and so we must recognize not only that we were not made for ourselves, we were made for God, but also that our sin gets between us and God. But Christ rose from the dead to change that. And that's good news. That this can be our story now. That we can be rich, full, freed from our sin, to walk in newness of life with God all the time. Because he's in us. He wants to make his home within us. And so the act of contrition here is confession. Because we need to confess to the one who forgives sin, who washed it by his blood. And he's transforming us from the inside out. 
by the Holy Spirit. That's First John one nine. Last word, trembles, trembles at God's word. The one who trembles at God's word, I believe, loves the voice of the one who speaks, listening to him. You've heard the phrase, the word of God. The word of God, a phrase in scripture, actually points to a number of things, not just your print Bible. It is the print Bible because the, the Bible, his commands and his precepts are things that we should read digest, live without any excuses. The Bible must be your compass. It must transform your life. But the word of God also points to Jesus himself. He is the word, John chapter one. He is our example. He's our teacher. He's the word lived out in reality. And so our response to Jesus as the word of God, if we are to tremble at God's word, tremble does not mean like, oh my gosh, I'm so scared. No, it's I want to honor it with all that I am. And so Jesus, I believe, has a lot of titles. Definitely. We're not going to do another list. But I believe primarily he has three core roles. First one, as Messiah. And we ought to thank him continually for giving his life for us. For living, uh, for living the perfect life and being the perfect sacrifice that we couldn't be to raise us in newness of life. That he's the Messiah. And now, functionally, that happened in the past. He's always our Messiah. But functionally, that happened in the past. Okay? So, um, past. Okay? And naturally, that means the next one is the present. Now, still the Messiah. Don't get me wrong. But then, Jesus is also the high priest. If you've never read Hebrews, go read it. It's fire. Hebrews is so awesome. It's all about Jesus being the high priest. That He is now the one who's in charge of the temple. He is the one that takes his blood, puts it on the altar, and pardons us of our sins. And he also is the great intercessor. He goes before the Father, bringing all of our requests to him. And so, we, this is Hebrews 4, directly, we can confidently go to him. Continually and confidently, Jesus. And lastly, his future, now he's, he still is this, now, but functionally it's going to happen later. He is our bridegroom king. He's the one who's coming again. King, rider on a white horse. Who are we? We are going to have the marriage supper of the Lamb and be married to as the church. Forever and ever and ever. And so we can continually come to Jesus and thank him. We can confidently go to him. And we should follow him Complete. Because he's coming soon. And the church has gotten so far off track, but God's desire is still to build his home among his people. And praise God for the Holy Spirit, who is our helper, helper, who is our comforter, who is our redirector when we get off track. Because we must recognize that we cannot live life on our own, but living in the fear of the Lord and recognizing, man, this is the Son of God who I can know and come to continually, confidently, and completely, always. That's trembling at God's word. Jesus is the Bible lived out. So God has a desire for a home, and that home is actually in our hearts. And we need to recognize where we've fallen off track and say, Lord, where am I getting off track? Search me and know me of God. See if there's any grievous way within me and lead me in the way everlasting. I want to walk with you, God. And so the garden was pointing to a greater garden. The kingdom of Israel pointed to a greater Israel. Jerusalem points to a greater Jerusalem. It's the people of God.
in love and in awe of nobody else but him. Pure and devoted. So as we close, may our heart posture be of Psalm 132 that says this, Surely I will not enter my house, nor lie on my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids. This guy's bent on one thing. He says, until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. I want God to have his home. And the message of the Bible is that that home is our hearts. Jesus gave everything to make us his resting place. He gave his entire life. And so I want to provoke you today to do the same. To say, God, I don't want to like sit on the fence. I don't want to kind of go through the motions. The biggest fault of the church today is thinking that we can just coast. Just check the box. Go to church on Sunday mornings. Every blue moon, uh, go to a prayer meeting. But instead, we need to recognize that God will come and show up in a locale where he's welcomed. And so we must, be a, we must become and continue to grow as a church that worships him in spirit and in truth. And that begins in our hearts, humble, contrite, and trembling at God's word. And so the most practical application is tonight, 7 p.m., we have a prayer meeting here, our monthly prayer meeting. Cancel your plans for whatever you're doing. Come tonight. We're going to be seeking God's presence. We're going to be welcoming him. In humility, Lord willing, Lord, help me get over my pride. And I'll be here. Come. Because the God who is everywhere wants to dwell somewhere, and that somewhere is in your heart. And that's an honor. Don't take that for granted as as a believer. And if you're here and you're not a believer, well, get saved. God's good. He loves you. He wants a relationship with you. Don't be passive. So we're going to be taking communion. We're going to continue worship. If you're not saved, don't take communion. Instead, get saved. It's very simple. God God wants to dwell within you and you in him forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And that's the most beautiful thing ever. Don't let another day pass without either getting out of complacency and running after him with, without ever giving up on this mission. Or if you haven't started, start now. And um, yeah, he gave everything to make us his resting place. And here he is now. He's among us because he's everywhere. And so acknowledge that presence. It, even as we worship and before you take communion, uh, I'll come back up to lead communion in a bit. And just say, Lord, like, where am I off track? Where can I get better at this? Okay.